Well, as you see in the bulletin, it's a pretty popular day to have a birthday. <laughs> I, for one, happen to know that I've got a couple of treats waiting for me this afternoon, so I'm kind of looking forward to that. I heard some mention about a lemon cake, and that will get my attention every time, so <laughs> I'm glad for that. Um, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 4 and 5. We're going to um, take a look today. Um, Heather said, what, what, shall I, what title, what shall I put in the bulletin? And I hemmed and hawed around for quite a while, and finally I said, well, put in Healed by Faith. Um, we're going to talk about some healing miracles of Jesus and how, what he did, how he accomplished these. But as you go through the narrative of the book of John, there, there, there's more going on here than the miracles that healed these guys. But that's really what we want to focus on is how this happened and how, how their faith played a part in this. Now, uh, so really what we're going to look at is the last few verses, the last eight verses in chapter 4, and then go on into the first verses of chapter 5. I'm not real sure where I'll stop in chapter 5, probably at verse 15, because what we're going to see happen here is um, Jesus um, heals these guys, and he does it in kind of different ways, and he does it kind of for different purposes. Now, you know, we have a chapter break here. We, we end chapter 4 and start chapter 5. When John wrote this narrative, he did not make chapter breaks. You know, it was, just, it was just one narrative. He wrote the whole letter, the whole epistle, the whole book, whatever you want to call it. And um, the, the chapter and verse breaks were added later. So I think there's a reason that John put these two uh, uh, healing miracles together. Uh, you know, in chapter 4, we're going to talk about the nobleman's son. In chapter 5, we're going to talk about the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. They're two different places, two different locations, uh, two different incidents. And the, 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 the way the story comes out, the way the narrative comes out, it's really different things, uh, different uh, ways that Jesus accomplishes these miracles. But I think John put them together, even though it was kind of a different timeline, I think he put them together in the narrative because he wanted to point out that Jesus' ministry is undergoing a change. Now, if you go back through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, and, and, then, and then John, we always talk about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's Gospel is very unique. It does not really, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, if, if you use, if you read a synoptic Gospel, um, those three um, Gospels just pretty much parallel, but John very seldom pops up in a parallel type of narrative. Uh, John's gospel narrative stands alone it is unique and it is because john is taking on um, the responsibility or the task uh, he is portraying christ as a deity he's portraying christ as god and so it's it's different as you go through matthew mark and luke there are many 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 examples of miracles that jesus is performing and it is drawing many people to him so when you come to John, here we are up in the fourth chapter, and he's talking about the first part of the fourth chapter, fourth chapter, or actually back in the second chapter, he's talking about uh, the, the miracle of changing water to wine at Cana. And so then when we get to the last part of chapter 4, which is where we're going to take up today, he is back in Cana. So 
we've gotten quite a bit, quite a distance into the book of John before John is talking about these miracles. And then as we move into chapter 5, it's, he's going to kind of switch the narrative a little bit. And we'll talk about a little bit more what that means here in just a little bit. Now, um, he, he's coming back to Cain here. Let's, let's take it up in verse 46. Uh, chapter 4, verse 46 says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, now, my Bible translation is ESV, and so the translations are different. Uh, you get different, different words for different things. A lot of translations will say nobleman. But if you go to the Greek word, the root, the root word that John wrote, the narrative in Greek, if you go to that word... Um, that word can be translated almost always as royalty. Sometimes it's translated as uh, as prince. So one thing we can kind of count on, this official that, that ESV says, nobleman, which many other translations say, this is someone in the court of Herod. This is a high muckety-muck in, in the kingdom, in the, in, the, in, the, in the government of Herod. Now, whether he's actually in the palace, you know, uh, family or not, it, it remains to be seen. He says he lives in Capernaum, so probably he is a uh, provincial overlord, overseer, uh, county commissioner, whatever you want to call him. He has a position in the government out here in the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and Cana are between 15 and 20 miles apart. So even for a nobleman, even for an official... To get up in his carriage, whether it's pulled by horses or whether to get on a horse and ride, even at that, when you're talking 20 miles, it's it's, it's a journey. You don't just jump in the pickup and run into Garden City to to get a coke at Casey's. You know, it, it's it's more complicated than that. It is a journey. So uh, it says now we know by the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know from. Jesus turning the water into wine at Cana before. Jesus has quite a reputation. People are accepting Jesus and are, um, I don't know what you, what, how to pronounce it exactly. They're not really worshiping Jesus, but they have accepted Jesus as a miracle worker. They've heard about the things this guy's doing, and it's drawing big crowds. So a lot of people know about Jesus. They know about his healing power. They know about the things he's doing. They know what's going on, and more and more and more people are beginning to come to be attracted to him. Well, uh, Jesus is going to address that here in just a minute. But in verse 47 it says, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This official's son was ill and had become so ill he was about to die. So he came to ask Jesus you know, to, to to beg him, come to Capernaum and heal my son. So he knows about Jesus' uh, power as a miracle worker. He knows that Jesus has something divine going on. Now, whether he actually believes in Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord, we really don't know that yet. We really don't know that yet. But we do know that there's this huge attraction from all through the population for Jesus as miracle worker. So we're going to see some shifts here as we go through these uh, through these stories. Uh, verse 48, so it says, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Okay, now we need to stop there for a little bit. It's quite remarkable the faith that this man displays. When Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live, he believed him. He had faith in what Jesus was telling him, and he turned around and left. Uh, We come to verse 51. It says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, we need to talk a little bit about the clock here. Um, This man is returning home, and, and he meets his servants, and the servants say, Your son's healed. Your son recovered at the seventh hour. And um, the man knew that it was at the seventh hour that Jesus told him, Go, your son will live. Now, was, did the man stay overnight in Cana and then return home? Or did he turn around as soon as Jesus spoke to him and, and started home? Remember, it is a 20-mile journey. Now, it kind of depends if you're going by Jewish time, by Hebrew time, or Roman time. Uh, if you're going on the Hebrew clock, the day starts at 6 in the morning. That's the first hour. So the seventh hour would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So the man would have time to make that journey from, you know, 1 o'clock when Jesus told him, go your somewhere. He would have time to make the 20-mile journey back to Capernaum. If you're going on Roman time, the clock starts at 12 noon. So the seventh hour would be 7 o'clock in the evening. Now, not even a nobleman, not even a government official would travel after dark for fear of the the robbers, the thieves, the dangers of the dark. So if it it stands to reason that this guy is going on Roman time, after all, he was a Roman official. So if Jesus told him this at 7 in the evening, he stayed overnight in Cana. So the next day as he's returning home, here come his servants to meet him. His servants can't wait to come tell him the good news. Sir, your son is recovered. Your son is healed. And so the man says... When, uh, when did, you know, when did this happen? Uh, and verse 52, so he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, now what we see in this official, in this nobleman, we see him move through four stages of faith. And you kind of scratch your head a little bit and say, now wait a minute, isn't faith faith? Well, it is, yes. But you move through different stages. You move through different ways. And it's demonstrated by this nobleman being motivated to come find Jesus in Cana to beg him to come heal his son. It's called crisis faith. I think we all have, at one time or another, have had a pretty healthy dose of crisis faith. Something happens. Something bad happens. Someone has an accident. Someone gets deathly ill. Or, you know, something bad is going on. And we're all motivated to, to exercise our faith, to come to God in prayer and say, Oh, please help with this. Please intervene. Please intercede for us. And take care of this. That's exactly where the man was uh, when, when he came to Jesus. 
<clears throat> he came to Jesus. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And this, and this is what's remarkable for this man at this point is basically an unbeliever. He is coming because he's attracted by the miracles that Jesus is doing. He has confident faith. He says, okay. Jesus said, my son will live. I'm going to turn around and go home. Now, we need to stop there a little bit and talk a little bit about time and space. This is the second miracle that Jesus is performing here in Cana. But it's not the first miracle where, that he performs where he's not actually on the scene. Uh, in Matthew 8, uh, he heals the centurion's servant. The centurion comes to him and says, my servant is ill. Jesus says, uh, uh, be calm, your servant is healed. And Jesus was actually not on the scene. Matthew 15, uh, he heals the Canaanite woman's daughter. And it's basically the same way. The Canaanite, woman's, Canaanite woman comes to him and says, my daughter is ill. And, and Jesus said, she's healed. She'll be healed. Jesus is not actually on the scene. This official, this nobleman, comes to Jesus thinking he has to get Jesus to return home to him in order to heal his son not only, not only is, is it a, a matter of time or a matter of space, you, Jesus, you have to come be where my son is. It's also a matter of time. You have to get there before my son dies. Jesus demonstrates that's not the case. Matter of space, he says, go home. Your son is healed. Jesus is not there. He heals, it. He, he, uh, heals the son without being present at his side. Also, it's a matter of time. Jesus could have healed him before or after the son died. In this case, he did. The son was very was deathly ill with a fever, had not passed yet, and Jesus healed him from a distance. So, um, in, in both of these instances of Jesus performing a miracle in Cana, he's dealing with time and space. Now, when you think about him turning the water to wine, how, how is that? How does that work? Well, when you think about Jesus turning the water to wine, what, how is wine made? It's made, it, it's a process of time, goes through a fermentation period, and you use water. So if you let the time process play out in making wine, water is turned to wine over a period of time. Jesus conquered time when he turned the water into wine instantly. It didn't have to have that time period to be turned from water to wine. So Jesus conquered time when he turned the water to wine in Cana. He conquered space when he healed the man's son from a distance. So these miracles involve time and space, Jesus being ruler over both. Now that's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around because we are ruled by time and space. You know, I can't immediately be eating my lemon cake this afternoon. I have to, I have to, I have to go through space to get to that point. It's also going to take some time, and I'm quite impatient for that time to pass. But you know, I'll get there eventually. Just be patient. <laughs> but Jesus conquered time and space. He conquered time by instantly turning the water to wine. He conquered space by speaking, and the man's son was healed, even though he was not present. Okay, so the man came to Jesus with crisis faith. He left Jesus with confident faith. It turned into confirmed faith when he met his servants on the way, on the road, and his servant said, your son is healed. His faith was confirmed. Now, here's where we need to all pay more attention. 
Here's what we all need to be more diligent at. His faith was changed to contagious faith. He came with crisis faith. He left with confident faith. He, he met up with his servants and had confirmed faith. He went back home, and he himself believed in all his household. He became a believer. He told everybody he knew. He told his household. He told the people around him. It became contagious faith. That's where a lot of times I think we fall short. We know about Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We have faith that Jesus has saved us. We have faith that Jesus can heal us. We have faith that Jesus will heal us. But is it contagious? Do we tell people around us? Do we tell people we know? Are we willing to to spread the gospel? That's what we need to work on. Now, as we move into chapter 5, it's, we're going to find a whole, uh, a different situation here, but you're going to find some of the same, uh, uh, factors at play. You're going to find some of the same issues are going on here. Uh, so, it, it, then John goes on with his narrative and says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus going up to Jerusalem, uh, his last experience there wasn't that good. What he found was that, um, his, his sport, his, his support, uh, the people coming to him, it was kind of a hollow thing. And it, it had more to do with this people believing that Jesus is a miracle worker. Also, we find that in Jerusalem, which, of course, is, is the heart of, uh, you know, the Jewish religion, uh, the Pharisees, um, you know, the, the, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, this, of course, this is their, this is their home, this is their headquarters. Not once do they ever dispute Jesus' miracles. They never come around after Jesus has, has, uh, performed a miracle, has healed someone, has, uh, had someone, you know, do different things, be healed or be able to go out and, and minister to other people, any of these things. Not once do the Pharisees ever come and dispute Jesus' Authority as a miracle worker, what they, what we're going to see here in chapter 15 as we go through this, what really sets them off and what gets them going, what makes them decide then to come after Jesus to end his ministry by ending his life. And, and I hope I'm not getting too far ahead of Kyle and Forrest here as we go on through John. But that's really what you're going to see starting to happen here in chapter 15. They're coming after Jesus because of who he claims to be. Not once do they ever dispute uh, his acts of performing miracles. But it's when he starts to say, yes, I'm he, that's when they go into action. And so that's what we're going to see kind of develop here as we go into chapter 15. Starting at verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews as Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know what feast. Uh, You know, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible about about the different feasts, about the different festivals of the Jews. Uh, but this one, and, and Jesus always comes around at Passover, and it's actually when, when we get, uh, uh, when we come to the crucifixion, uh, Jesus kind of manipulates the days coming up to Passover to make it fall right so that he will be the lamb of the Passover. But on this, this feast here, we don't know which one it is. We don't know what, uh, what feast of the Jews it is, but Jesus went to Jerusalem to be present for the feast. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda. Now, if you uh, 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 go into the archaeological part of your study Bible or read about any commentary, uh, they will talk about how this pool has been uncovered. It's by the north wall. 
a little bit to the west of the northeast corner of the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. And this pool of Bethesda has been found, has been dug up, uh, has been opened up again. And I don't think there's water there now, but they have uncovered uh, the structure that they're talking about here. Uh, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So here's this pool of water, and it's got these, we would call them porches around them, uh, with columns holding up these roofs, and there are five of them. So it's quite an elaborate structure. Quite a few people can gather there. Now, <clears throat> in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain times into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, a little, uh, little disclaimer here. I'm reading out of the ESV. In order to read those last two verses, I had to go down to the footnote at the bottom of my page. A lot of manuscripts do not include the last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 in the manuscript. Uh, uh, your your uh, King James, New King James does. Um, NIV does not. ESV does not. And it depends on the translation. It, it depends on the manuscript that your translation comes from, whether they include those verses. However, if you don't include those verses, when you get to verse 7, where Jesus is talking to the sick man, verse 7 will not make a lot of sense if you have not read the verses about what these people are doing here. If it wasn't for the angel disturbing the water to give them a chance to, uh, the first one in to be healed, there's really not much reason for these people to be gathered here. And so that's what we're gonna, we're gonna explore that a little bit. This man has had an affliction for 38 years and he's laying there waiting for the angel to move the water so that he can, he can be the first one in and be healed. Um, verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, I don't know if that's since birth or if he was a teenager and became an invalid and been for 38 years since. We really don't know if 38 years is his whole lifespan or not. But John does make note that this man has been an invalid for 38 years. Now, there's a reason he mentions this 38 years. Keep your finger there or stick your bulletin in the in John there. And go with me back to Deuteronomy. Um, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 2 and go to verse 14. Okay? Now, uh, in my Bible at least, chapter 2 of Deuteronomy is titled, The Wilderness Years. And Kyle read a verse from Deuteronomy earlier talking about the 40 years in the wilderness of the Jewish people. So the first part... Uh, of chapter 2 is giving some detail about uh, where the children of Israel are and so forth. So part about, uh, about uh, their, their you know, setting up to go into the wilderness. Now you need to remember, you need to understand, when they first came out of Egypt, their first stop was Mount Sinai. And they spent quite a bit of time there. So they came out of Egypt and until they went into, uh, until they crossed the River Jordan and went into the Promised Land, it was a total of 48 years. But get to verse 14 here, and, and this is what John is referring to. It says, At the time of our leaving, Kadesh Barnea, okay, till the breaking camp at Mount Sinai, okay, at the time from our leaving, Kadesh Barnea, until we crossed the brook Zered, was 38 years. 
Now, I'm not sure what crossing the brook Zered is, but I think it means coming up to the east side of the Jordan River. From the time they broke camp at Mount Sinai until they came to the Jordan River, ready to cross into the land of Canaan, was 38 years. Now, why? Until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Because, uh, you know, Moses sent the, the scouts in to check it out. Came the, you know, the twelve scouts came back. Only two, Caleb and Joshua, said, yeah, we can take them. Let's go. And the rest of them said, no, we can't. Those giants will slaughter us. We can't do it. And the people believed the ten that said, no, we can't do it. So until all those people above the age of 20 had passed away, they wandered for 38 years. It took 38 years for all that generation to die. And, and so that's what John's referring to here. He's saying the 38 years that the people, that the nation wandered in the wilderness and the 38 years that this man has lain an invalid, there's a parallel there. It's spiritual and physical impotence. The nation spiritually impotent, impotent wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. This man physically impotent has lain as an invalid for 38 years. It takes the power of God to heal. Basically, that's what he's pointing out here when he, when he mentions this 38 years that this man has lain an invalid. So we go back to verse 6 now. It says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Well, if I'd been laying there 38 years, you know, you'd think your response is, Oh, yeah, I've been laying here all this time. That's exactly what I want. But this man was so conditioned to his illness, to his, you know, to his condition, just like the nation of Israel wandering for 38 years. They were so conditioned to it that you tend to whine and complain and care, you know, instead of being enthusiastically ready for healing. The man said, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down another... And while I am going down, another steps before me. Well, uh, several, I've read several commentaries in this, and in the MacArthur commentary, he, 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 I think it's kind of speculation, but he puts forth that this man has been an invalid for 38 years. He ends up laying here at the pool of Bethesda, hoping to be healed by being the first one in the water. When, when he states, there's nobody to put me in the water, I'm here by myself. He kind of speculates that this means basically his family, his friends have abandoned him. They brought him here, they put him down, and then they said, you know, we're done. There's nothing more we can do. We're no longer able to care for you. And they have abandoned him. And so they go away. Here he is. He needs to get down these, however many steps it is, when the angel disturbs the water. If he had someone someone there to care for him, I kind of picture it in my mind. My buddy's sitting there, and as soon as I see the angel disturbing the water, just pick me up and chuck me in there, you know. I'd be the first one in. But he has no one to do this for him. So that's what he's telling Jesus. I can't get in the water. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked, now that day was the Sabbath. That's what got him in trouble. That day was the Sabbath. Jesus did that intentionally. He chose the Sabbath. This man had been laying there for 38 years. Jesus could have come to him the day before the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath. He didn't do it. He came to him on the Sabbath. 
so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And the man said, I don't know. This man walked up to me, said, Take up your bed and walk, and I did it. I had the faith to get up off this bed with my crippled legs, stand up, roll up my bed, and go away. I don't know who it was. Now, that's what got the man in trouble. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, what am I trying to say? Jay, what am I trying to say? The Torah, uh, the Talmud, the Talmud. All these rules that, that have been made up all these years. There are 39 things that you cannot do on the Sabbath. One of them is carry a burden. So the Pharisee says, you rolled up your bed and walked on the Sabbath. You carried a burden. You broke the Sabbath. Never mind that you were miraculously healed and walking around on legs that have not held you up for 38 years. Don't mind that. We're worried about you breaking the rule of carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And that's what they wanted to prosecute this man for. But when he said, uh, when he said, I don't know who it was. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn uh, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, are you well? Sin no more. Uh, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing, nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. When he, the man went to the temple to give thanks because he was healed, while there, he met Jesus, discovered who this was, and then went around spreading the news. Okay? And this is why the Jews were prosecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. When the man realized it was Jesus that had healed him, and he went around telling people, this man that healed me told me to take up my bed and walk, it is Jesus. Then the, the Pharisees were no longer interested in prosecuting the man. Then they turned their attention to Jesus. So that's how you know things have kind of shifted here. We see two two different examples of Jesus miraculously healing people, but the way John is shaping and writing the narrative, we see J- Jesus' ministry taking a shift. It is taking a public stance. Uh, he's gone from these uh, private miracles of the wine at the wedding. And healing the nobleman's son from a distance where no one would know it but the nobleman and the people right around him. Now he's taking a public stance. He walks up to this man at the pool of Bethesda. Now there's, there's several things we could go into here. Uh, number one, he walks up here, there's all these people laying around. Why did he just heal the one man? I don't really, I can't really have a good answer to that. He just healed one, left the others because a crowd was gathering. Why is it that we see someone healed, but my loved one is not healed? Why is that? I don't know. You know, we don't know what God's plan is. You know, we, we, we talk about praying and faith believing, and we see that happening. We see it happening in our church family just in the last few months. Look at the healing process that Jared has gone through. He's still going through it, but there is no doubt that there has been healing in Jared's case, that that medicine cannot explain. There's no doubt about that. You know, we saw Bob with traumatic spinal injury. He, he's not wearing a neck brace. He didn't have to go through that surgery that the doctor said he would. Uh, we saw Houston, you know, uh, 
with, with lung issues that seemed pretty bad at the time, Houston asked for prayer. And when he went through the process, he was healed. He came out of it. It was not that serious in the end. We see these things happening. So why doesn't it happen for everyone? I really can't answer that. All I can say is that I don't know all of God's plan. There are mysteries. We talk about this a lot. Mysteries that we don't know, will not know until we get there. What I can say is that when we get there, we will experience the ultimate healing. Physical healing, spiritual healing, we will be healed when we are with the Lord forever. So that is how I can answer that, why we're not all blessed with physical healing here. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our great healer, our great physician. You heal us physically, you heal us spiritually, you heal us emotionally. So Lord, just let us have the faith to know that we have healing. Whether it is immediate and now, or whether it is when we see you face to face. Lord, we know that we will be healed. As we go from here today, Lord, we just pray your blessing uh, on our lives, uh, on our relationships. As we go to our families, as we go to our jobs, as we go to our acquaintances, many different places we go through the week, Lord. Just lead, guide us, and let us feel your presence and bring us together safely again. We just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.